Hey everybody, thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. Um, every time it seems like in be- between Christmas and January, it's like, oh, what should we do? Should we just throw like a one sermon in? Should it be a part of a sermon series? And we kind of decide it's better to just do like one-off sermons. So we're not, a, we're not in a sermon series or anything today. Um, and what I titled today's sermon is Because He Says So. And he says, what he says is good. And so uh, the, the idea behind this, I want you to get in your, in your mind a, a scenario uh, for my family a couple years back. This is about six years ago. We were living up in Manaqua. And it was the second home that we had, had had there. We had a small home when we only had two kids. And then we had a third kid. And we're like, we need more room. And so we got this house that uh, it was like a half mile away from Walmart. And it was on a back road, and there was this huge curve right in front of our house. There was a big, huge curve that led all the way to Walmart. And all the town locals knew about this, this road up in Manaqua because, like, you, you want to get to Walmart the quick way? You're going to go that way. The problem was is people would come screaming through that corner. Like, the kind of screaming through the corner, if I was outside, you'd, you'd see me yelling at them, like, Where are you? There's kids that live here. You know, that kind of stuff. This anger just well up in me. And, yeah, it wasn't always pretty. That would happen, and, and so my kids, we'd be out in, the, out in the yard or out in the driveway, and they would, we had this nice long driveway, and so they'd often be riding their bike or whatever, and we had this, this phrase that we would tell them. We would say, kids, don't go past the line. Uh, they're, if they're riding their bike, we'd say, don't ride past the line. Get to the line and come on back. And what it was was there was in the like 15 to 20 feet from the road. It was like this God-given mistake in the driveway that was perfect. It was this big, huge, long crack that went along the whole driveway. Now, some people would be like, I hate having cracks in my driveway. I was like, it's a perfect place to tell your kids to stop. And so that's what we did. We said, don't go past the line. Don't go past the line. And now, if our kids ever came to us and be like, Mom, Dad, why can't we go past the line? We'd just be like, because you'll get run over. Like, just kind of being honest, right? Like, a car is going to hit you. Now, I didn't say this kind of stuff to scare my kids. If you, any of you know my children, they have, a little bit of, uh, they have a little bit of Kellen in them in that I used to be a huge worrywart all the time. I couldn't sleep at night. I was worried about fires, all this stuff. And they have that in them. And so I don't want to scare my kids. If I wanted to scare my kids, I'd have shown them a, a, a video of somebody getting hit by a car. And be like, that's what's going to happen. Don't go past the line. But you've all been there as a parent. It's like, you tell your kids something, uh, just, just do it because I say so. How many times have you said, because I said so? We say it all the time. Um, even if you're not a parent, you've had a little kid around you probably, and you're like, just because I said so, kid, shh. It's what we do. So God did the same type of thing with the first two people on earth that he put on earth, Adam and Eve, uh, in the Garden of Eden. And so he, he told them not to do something. And like everybody else, they're going to question it. But he's like, don't do something. And he kind of put another little stipulation on it. Don't do it, this thing or you'll die. Wasn't trying to scare them. It was just kind of the facts of the matter. Like, you do this, 
Trouble's going to come. And so I want to read a little bit of this story from the book of Genesis. Uh, reading a little bit out of both chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's a little bit longer, so stick with me. It should be up on the screen as I read it. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God told the man and put, uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serp serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. It's the first time they realized it, people. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So why didn't God, why did God really say exactly how dangerous this was for Adam and Eve? As far as we know, they didn't even really know what death was at this point. So when he said, like, don't eat this or you're going to die, there must have been a little bit of Adam and Eve that's like, what's that? We don't even know. Why didn't God show them exactly what was going to happen to them? He didn't want them to become fearful, uh, but he wanted them to just listen to his voice. He wanted them to start to understand that listening to his voice, it actually was going to be good for them. Just listen to my voice and it's going to be good. But they couldn't, they, they just, they couldn't quite grasp onto that. They never really ask what is death, but I wonder if, if they had asked God, okay, what is death? What does it mean what you're saying right now? I wonder if God would have just been like, just, just do what I say. Or would he have kindly, gently been, well, here's what it is. This is why I don't want it for you. Don't really know. But we do a lot of things in life, and we do, I, th I would say most of us, the, the vast majority of what we do is probably pretty good. We probably do a lot, most of things good in life. And we don't really like to talk about sin a whole lot. It's just something that, that we kind of like to keep off in the distance. But I'm going to tell you something else that I think we like to talk about even less. I don't think we like to admit to ourselves that even the good that we do, a lot of times, is steeped in something that is not good. We do a lot of things that are good, but maybe not for the right reasons. Now I want to read this from you from Matthew 7. Verses 21 through 23, Jesus says some really interesting stuff here. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles? Then I'm going to tell them plain, plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know about any of you if you read that as a kid, and it terrified the everything out of you, but that was one of those verses for me. Um, Jesus says, only those who do the will of my Father 
are going to enter heaven. Now, what in the world is that supposed to mean? I think what he's trying to say here, in part, is it's not about just doing the right things. It's about doing the right things with the right intentions. Having God, God's plan, God's idea for life in your heart. Just healing the sick or driving out demons. That's, that's a good thing, but it's not what it's all about all the time. Living right for God, living right for God is actually even harder than we thought. If we're following to a, to a T what Jesus is saying in that passage, just following the rules, is that really not enough? Is it, is, is following God, is following Jesus this difficult? And there's, now there's people that would hear this and, and they would say, man, I knew that being a Christian was really tough. I knew it was too tough for, for anybody to do it. To do it. And some people would be like, I knew it was really, really tough, and I'm glad that I'm like one of the only ones that knows how to do it. So there's people who think that way. But if that's the way we think about following Jesus, then we haven't fully understood what following Jesus is all about. The gospel actually says that it's not a ju- just about following all the right rules. Actually, it is utterly impossible on your own to do what God wants you to do. We cannot be righteous on our own. That's why in Matthew 7, Jesus is trying to get it through to these people. Like, you can do all these good things. But still there's something in our heart that is not right and that is unrighteous. The gospel actually shows us that Jesus did the righteous living that we couldn't do. He was the standard that that we could not attain to. And he lived up to that standard. So that now we don't have to, like, we don't have to try our hardest all the time to live up to some standard that's impossible. And so I want to look at Genesis 2 and 3 because um, I think there's some really important ideas about sin that we see in Genesis 2 and 3. And again, sin's not something that we like to talk about all the time, but I think it's important. Um, and I, I want to put it out there that I, a lot of these ideas are not my, my own. I took a, a lot of the, this next part of the sermon from a guy named Timothy Keller uh, in a sermon that he, I think he did back in 1998. I think as a, as a leader, one of the things that's super important is to give other people uh, places to go to continue growing. And so I'm going to just throw it out there. I, I think I said this last year, probably the first, uh, first sermon of the year. If you can do, do anything smart this year, go and find Timothy Keller's podcast online, I, iTunes, whatever. It is going to be 100% worth your time. The guy is such a good preacher. And so... The first thing about sin that I think is worth seeing in this passage is the root of sin. Now, we've probably all heard that money is the root of all evil. Well, really, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. But I want to talk about what is the root of sin that we see in this passage. And here it is. The root of sin is the questioning of God. The root of sin. Is, it, I'm not saying sin itself is questioning God, but that is the root for it. If you look in Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, don't get me wrong. Just Eve hearing these words, this question from Satan, just hearing it in her head, that alone was not sin. But what happened was, in this question, she opened the door to allowing sin in. And that's what questioning God does a lot of the time. Uh, See, the definition of sin is going against God's commands. Now, if that's so, then the questioning of those commands is the very act of opening yourself up to walking in sin. 
we have a propensity for sin. And I think we see it even in our questioning. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, go and tell a three-year-old what to do or what not to do. I just want to see what happens in that interaction. Um, it's going to be question after question. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand how a three-year-old can look up at you and be like, who made you boss? Who told you that you could tell me what to do? Well, because I helped make you. Like, what else do you think, child? Uh, it, if, a, if Minneapolis, if Minnesota is a land of 10,000 lakes, I think preschool should be called the land of 10,000 questions. Because that's what you're going to get when you go into a room. And it is like, it is the natural thing in us. This propensity to not want to follow commands. There's that sin nature that just kind of resides there. Now God told Adam and Eve simply, don't eat the tree. Didn't really tell them exactly why not to. He told them what might happen if they do eat the tree, that they were going to die. But he didn't say why not to eat from the tree, really. Just want them to trust him. You see, the heart of sin is putting yourself in the place of God. It's putting yourself on your own throne. That is really what sin is all about. We're, we're, we question God and then we want to do whatever we want to do and put ourselves in, in the place of God. And so there are obviously, I think, clarification asking questions that we can ask of God. But then there's also those questions of like, you don't know what you're doing right now, God, kinds of questions that we like to ask God. And we actually see two different forms of those in, in Scripture. Even in our Christmas story, we see that. We see Mary, uh, the, the angel comes to Mary and is like, hey, you're going to have a kid even though you shouldn't be able to. And Mary asks, like, how? And we can tell by the way that the angel responds that her question of how was, was not a, like, God, you don't know what you're talking about question. It was a, I'm really interested in how this is going to happen, God. I believe you. How's it going to happen? And, but then we see with Zechariah, uh, this is Elizabeth's husband. Uh, they're the parents of John the Baptist. And angel comes to Zechariah and is like, hey, your really old wife is going to have a kid. And he asks how in a different way. He asks how in the, God, there's no way that you know what you're talking about right now. My wife is really old, kind of. How is this going to happen? And then for the next, what, nine months, John isn't able to speak. There was a consequence there. There are clarification asking questions, and then there are the, I don't trust you one bit that you know what you're talking about, God, kinds of questions. Adam and Eve both gave in to the wrong kind of questioning in this, in this passage. It was a kind where they effectively put themselves on the throne of their lives. And the problem was, is it, it did not end with the question. The moment that we start questioning God in these kinds of ways, a lot of the times it ends up taking us over the line to where we question and then we go against those commands. Because ultimately, we like to try to prove to ourselves, I know better than God. I'm going to figure out the way that I should live my own life. And when we question God, we make determinations that some things are good that he has never said are good, and we make determinations that some things are bad that he never said are bad. Think about that. When, when Adam and Eve finally sinned, what was the first thing that they realized about themselves? That they were naked. And so they looked around and they're like, oh, this isn't good. Yeah, it's probably not, all right? They realized they were naked, and all of a sudden there was this distance between them. They thought that this was not good, even though God never said it wasn't good. And so here's what happens. The, the, the passage shows us not just um, this, 
this part about sin that, that we all question God, but it also shows us then the results of sin. The results of sin are total depravity in our hearts and in the world. In our hearts and in the world, we, you can see it when you look around you. There's like this total depravity. And what happens is I think we get confronted with three kinds of alienation that takes place when our lives go into this place of sin. And sadly, the effects of this sin are something that I think every single one of us as Christians, we're not above having to contend with this. You know, we, we might have given over our sin nature and taken over the nature of, of what Christ has, has made for us, but we still contend with the effects of sin in this world. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, this is one of the scariest things for, for any Christian. If, if we're saying, man, I don't, have to, I don't have the alienation that sin has caused. Bible's saying right here, no, like we have to contend with this. So what are these alienations that we find? First one's this. We have spiritual alienation from God. This is probably the one that hurts the most. Um, you see in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, what happened? They took off. As God was coming into the garden, they ran away and they hid. There was this alienation, this separation. Uh, it reminds me, I think I've said this before, um, but it fits with this story. With this story. Uh, when I was in high school, it was my freshman year of high school. Got, got to the end of my freshman year of high school, and this girl, who was one grade older than me, she started to like me, and I thought it was cool, and so we started dating. And we got to the end of the school year. We'd been dating for like a month. End of the school year, we, we, we went the first, you know, two, three, four days of, of the summer vacation. We called each other a couple times. And then all of a sudden, we stopped calling each other. And it got to be like three, four, five days, three weeks, four weeks. And 4th of July came. And in my town of Manaqua, there's this, everybody goes downtown for 4th of July. It's like, it's the big thing to do. And I found out later that that day she saw me and she ran away. That doesn't bode well for the relationship, right? And then we got back to school. We had never talked still. Hadn't broken up. And so there's this really awkward thing where you see the person, you're like, I don't know if we're still dating. And so I saw her at school and I ran. I just hightailed it out of there. And what happened is there's this alienation between the two of us. Uh, we, we didn't know what was going on in the relationship, and so we just wanted to hide from it. Something wasn't right, and we knew that. Now, just so you know, I, I broke up with her like two years later after I'd started dating Crystal. So we were, we were sitting at her boyfriend's baseball game, and I was sitting next to her. We got comfortable enough that we could sit by each other, I guess. And I was just like, you know, we're both dating. We should probably break up. She's like, yeah, I've been thinking that for a while, so it's all good. So we've got this alienation from, from God. But then there's a second kind of alienation that we find. And this is an alienation from nature. Uh, and, okay, what in the world does it mean to be alienated from nature? In Genesis 3.17 it says, To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So because of this sin, Adam was going to have to work the ground incredibly difficult work all the rest of his life. It also said before that, it, it talked about Eve, you were going to have pain in childbirth. And all the women are like, thanks Eve. Appreciate that one. 
Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. There is an alienation in nature. I don't want to go like hiking out in California because I know that mountain lions will eat you. That is the alienation from nature. Go swim in the ocean. Shark might rip your arm off. That stuff is crazy. Wouldn't happen without sin, I don't think. Death and illness and, and decay, it's everywhere. We are alienated from nature. But then there's another third alienation that we find for ourselves. And this is a social alienation from one another and from our real selves. Sin has alienated us from, our, from each other, but also even understanding who it is that I am the way that God made me. We so much hate to, to admit that there is sin in us that we want to blame it on other people. And so you see in, in the story here, Genesis 3.12, God is saying to Adam, like, hey, why'd you do that? And right away he goes, hey, the woman you put me here made me do it. And then the woman, the next verse, God's like, why'd you do it? And she's like, well, the serpent deceived me. They couldn't take, they couldn't take responsibility on themselves. See, sin is so self-centered that I can't even come to admit that I am the reason for its existence. And so the alienation goes further. Like I talked about, they felt like they had to clothe themselves. Genesis 3.11, God said to them, who told you that you were naked? But they no longer shared this same relationship, this wholesome, beautiful relationship. And so now you're at home and you've got your kids and they, they fight and they, they bicker all the time because that's sin working its way through us. Bringing out all this yucky stuff. And I want to say this. I think that the, the alienation, the social alienation has been, it's been magnified today in a lot of ways. We have a generation of young people, but I don't want to say just young people. We have a generation of adults, sometimes myself included, who we are so addicted to the technology around us and the, the little technology gadgets, we call them phones a lot of the time, that we have lost our ability a lot of times to understand how to socially connect with other people. And I just want to throw this out there. I may have said this already, but I think it's super important to say this again. I was listening to a book uh, a couple weeks back, and the guy was, was quoting some research talking about how um, young kids, you know, like 16 and under, when they are on a phone for two hours or less, which, um, let me be honest with you, two hours or less, that's quite a bit of time still. But... When they're on for two hours or less, there is no, um, there's no record of there being a greater influence of depression or anxiety in their lives because of that. But once you hit the two-hour mark or more of young people being on these devices and that social alienation that takes place through that, the anxiety and the depression goes skyrocketing. We are putting ourselves in a place where we are allowing for more and more social alienation. And it's not what God wants for us. And it bugs me even just how much I, when I talk about this, how much I've allowed myself to get alienated from people because of this stuff. Our alienation is evolving and it's taking on stronger and more detrimental effects than I think it ever has before. And I gotta say this, I think we need to fight for the lives of our children. I think we need to fight for our own lives and our own relationships with our kids and with our coworkers and with the people around us. All of this is a result of this continually increasing alienation that sin brings with it. 
these alienations to God and to nature and to others happen so easily because so many of the things that lead to alienation, they don't seem wrong to us. For Adam and Eve, you have to imagine when they took that fruit, whatever it was from that, from that tree, they had to be thinking, what can be so bad? It looks really yummy. Same thing when I'm on my phone and my kids are, are annoying me around me and I'm like, what can be so bad if I just ignore them? But that cycle just continues and it evolves. See, I used to have this problem. Uh, Christians, we, we say this thing like, sometimes that, you know, people that follow Jesus can, can please God, but people that don't follow Jesus, they can't do anything to please God. And I was always like, what the heck does that mean? People that don't follow Jesus can do good stuff. But I think what it's getting at is this. Doing good alone does not assure us that we are pleasing God. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they, never, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Even when we do good, if our aim is not to bring glory to God, there is something that's missing in what we're doing. I think the Bible is really, really clear that we're steeped in this thing called sin. And the thing that God wants for us more than anything is to stop aiming at things that make ourselves better and bring glory to ourselves and to start aiming to bring glory to God in everything that we do. Can I say, even when I, even when I come up and I preach a sermon, there is something in me that's not always great. Sometimes I want to preach a good sermon so that everybody out here will think, man, he's a good preacher. That's a wrong motive, right? Or you can have the motive of, uh, man, I, I want... I want everybody to actually understand the gospel a little bit more. I want, I want God to be seen in a light that, that he deserves to be seen in. You think about all the good things that we do and how many times they're steeped in something evil. Some of you used to watch the show Friends. There was one episode with Phoebe. Um, she's, she's, tr she's trying to do something good. And she's actually, she's telling Joey, all the good stuff that you do, with none of there's always something selfish in it. And so she goes through all of these different things, trying to do something good, and everybody's pointing out to her, like, how that made you feel good and how that... And at the end, she's like, I can't do anything good that doesn't have a little bit of selfishness in it. And there's a little bit of truth. Many people, in many circumstances, are virtuous because of fear or pride. If we're only doing good things in order to be seen as good... We are virtuous for self-centered reasons. Nothing will stop us from becoming devious for the same reasons. As long as it gets us what we want. I want you to understand that. If you're being good, not, for, not to bring glory to God, but for yourself so that you will look good. It's not a far turn to be able to start doing devious things that are also for your own good. But if I'm living my life to bring glory to God and that is the number one reason that I'm trying to do anything in life the deviousness is very easy to put aside. Because being devious doesn't bring good stuff for God. There's a, a little story here that I want to just, I want to end with here. Um, actually, let me get to some, something else. I'm not ending quite yet here. I shouldn't have said that. Hey, it happens. You get off your notes a little bit and then that's what happens. There's a guy... Um, I'm, I literally lost my place where it was, but he talked about common virtue. Uh, common virtue being this thing that uh, 
everybody does, the, does good things all the time, and we can see it in people's lives, but a lot of times this common virtue is like if somebody was singing a note, they were singing a song, and you were listening to it, and you're like, man, that sounds really beautiful. But then you put them with a choir that was singing that same song, but in a different key. All of a sudden, the sound of that music that that one person who was singing beautifully, all of a sudden, they sound awful. Does that make sense? And this, this guy was talking about how that is like how most of us live with common virtue. That we do a lot of things that look good on the outside, but if they're not done for this common goodness of the kingdom of God, then there's something off with it. And that we're called to something that is a different kind of virtue. Paul David Tripp says, it's one thing to acknowledge God's existence. It's one thing to, to mentally assent to the truths of his word. And it's one thing to participate in the formal ministry of his church. But it's an entirely different thing to have every aspect of my life shaped and moved by love for him. I love that. All the stuff that you're doing, the stuff that you do with your kids as parents, the stuff that you do when you come into church, the stuff that you do at your workplace, you might be trying to do everything in a good way, but unless we go into it and say, God, I want people to see you through this. God, I want you to, to strip away from me any selfishness for the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing so that you can be seen 100%. That's a powerful prayer. So what then is true virtue? It is doing the right thing simply because God is God and you want to honor him for being God. It's not asking the questions, God, why, why do you make me do this? God, why do you ask this of me? Saying, God, if you said that it's what I'm supposed to do, then I trust it. And I'm going to follow it because I want you to be glorified. Well, worship team, you guys can come back up here. I am actually going to be done in just a second. I want to just give you quick the remedy of sin. And I've kind of, I've kind of alluded to it already. But the remedy of sin is this. That Jesus died to give us victory over the results of sin. He died to bring us, to bring out of us, by his grace, the true goodness that is in himself. What I love about the gospel is that the gospel says, I can't be perfect. And it says that I don't have to be perfect. Because Jesus was perfect for me. But it also alludes to something greater, that we get to become more like Jesus. We need to come to Jesus if we ever want to find victory over the results of this sin-infused life that we all live in. And I want you to understand this. God accepts us not because of our virtue. He accepts us because of Jesus. As you're trying to do all this good stuff in the world, it's, that's not what brings you close to God. It can be what brings glory to God. But it is God's perfect goodness, his love for Jesus, through, through Jesus for us, that brings us to God. So if you want to live a true life of virtue, we've got to continually come back to Jesus. We've got to continually come back to the gospel. Only Jesus can make you good in his eyes. You are never going to be able to do enough to all of a sudden, okay, now I know I'm good in God's eyes. Jesus did that work for you. When you mess up, the thing that you messed up the most maybe is showing in that moment to somebody else who Jesus was. You didn't mess up your relationship with God. He loves you in, despite all the stuff that we do. But man, I want nothing more than to live my life in such a way that it will bring glory to God. That people will see me 
bringing Jesus into everything that I do. Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.